All right. Well, good morning, church. I invite you to open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. A few weeks ago in Romans 5, we saw the glory of God's grace through considering how the work of the one God-man, Jesus Christ, could benefit us all. Right? We saw that God in his wisdom and goodness and grace has chosen to deal with uh, humanity through a representative. And initially, we saw in Romans 5 that Adam was our representative, and through Adam, sin and death had spread to us all. But we also saw that we could say, thanks be to God, that where sin increased, grace superabounded all the more through faith in our true and better representative, Jesus Christ. For he has triumphed over sin and death as a representative for his people. And I exhorted you then in light of this that this should, you should be humbled by this truth. You should be thankful for this and you should be confident in what Christ has and is accomplishing. And that would be a a proper response to hearing about the glorious grace of God in Romans chapter 5. But Paul anticipates here that not everyone is going to respond in a healthy way to hearing about the glorious grace of God. And so here in verse 1 of chapter 6, he proposes a question that he suspects people will ask, and that all of us have probably at one point in our lives have thought as well, and that is in Romans 6, verse 1. So look with me at it here. Romans 6, verse 1, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And that's the question this morning. Should we keep on sinning and maybe even pursue some more sin so that his grace can abound all the more? And I'm going to take about 40 minutes to say no. And so if that's the attention span, if this is all you got, that's the answer. The answer is no. But you could, but you could read the first five chapters of Romans and think, Paul, it seems like you're giving people a license to sin with all this truth that you're proclaiming. And it's what every preacher of the gospel has been accused of at some point or another. I mean, if you preach that we are justified because of the righteousness of Christ that has been credited to us and not a righteousness of our own, then why not just live the way you want to? Why not just pursue the fleeting pleasures of sin in this life, and then when Christ returns or when we die, we'll we'll still be good with God? And listen, that thinking is so off because it misunderstands how God works, how God loves, and how good the good news really is. In Romans chapters 1 through 5, we were primarily learning about what God has accomplished for us, but now as we shift gears into Romans 6 through 8, we're going to see what God is accomplishing in us, in us. 
We've, we've been learning about this righteousness that is outside of us, that is over us, this righteousness of God that we must receive through faith in Christ. But now that we've been justified, now that we have received this righteousness, this righteousness now starts working some things in us. In us. What happens when righteousness is not just revealed but when it is received. What happens when the Holy Spirit moves into our lives and takes up residence in our hearts? And what we'll see this morning is that things start to change. And those who have been justified by God through faith in Christ, they start to live differently. They start to love differently. They start to walk differently. They start to walk, as Paul puts it in verse 4, in newness of life. I mean, the, the, the first five chapters of Romans, we've been learning about what is true, what is true, what is true, what is true. But now we're going to start learning what we must do in light of this. Right? So some of you doers out there, you've just been longing for this, right? You just give me something to do. Okay, we're getting to it. But we can never rush ahead to it. It has to be built upon what is true. And that's what the first five chapters of Romans have been laying out. What is true? Therefore now, how is God working in us? And what are we called to do? And so we're going to start to receive some commands from God in Romans chapter 6. Thus far, there, there have not been many commands in Romans. But in chapter 6 and this morning, we're going to start to receive some commands from God. We're going to start to see that God has commanded us to walk in newness of life. And we'll see in these first 14 verses, this is how we're going to lay it out, that first we can walk in newness of life instead of continuing in sin because of our union with Christ. That's what we're first going to look at. Secondly, we'll see that we can walk in newness of life instead of continuing in sin because we have been set free from sin. And finally, we'll see that we can walk in newness of life instead of continuing in sin because of the promises of God. But before we jump in, I, we need to pray uh, because our hearts can start to do some funny things when we start receiving commands from God. So let's, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would speak powerfully to us through it. Father, this weekend we are also reminded and thankful for those that have laid down their lives for our country so that we might worship you freely this morning. We ask, Lord, that you would comfort and strengthen families that are remembering loved ones that, that laid down their life for our freedoms. Father, we ask that you would comfort those families in, in Texas, that you would strengthen them, Lord, as they mourn and grieve and, and wrestle with all the, the evil that, is, that has happened and taken place, Lord, recently. Father, we ask that we would glorify you this morning that we would worship you this morning as we proclaim and receive your word. That we would remember, Lord Jesus, 
the sacrifice you have made for us and your current intercession for us. We ask that you would keep our steps in accordance with your will and your promises. And we ask that you would be pleased and honored and glorified in all we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me explain by uh, what I mean when I say our hearts can do some funny things when we start to receive the commands of God. Uh, some of us can, can cry when we hear that, right? But, but others of us, right, when we, when we receive a, a command of God, the way we respond is typically in one of three different heart postures, okay? Uh, and those three are, uh, first is, we can respond with hearts that feel like they have a license to sin, right? When we receive a command, we can respond with this licentious, kind of, I have a license to sin type of heart, when we receive a command from God, we can respond with a legalistic heart. Or thirdly, when we receive a command from God, we can respond with hearts that are believing and trusting in the gospel. And what Paul is addressing here is primarily hearts that feel like grace has given them a license and excuse to sin. Right? That's what he's, that's what he's trying to, to, to cut off here at the past. That's what he's trying to address. This heart that feels like because of God's grace, they have a license to sin. Like who cares about the commands of God if God's grace superabounds? He'll, he'll, he'll forgive us, right? Well, that's a wrong way to respond, as we'll see, to the commands of God. But an equally bad way to respond to the commands of God is with a legalistic heart which is oftentimes how we respond when we see this heart of license start to play out. Legalism and a legalistic heart is essentially viewing your obedience to the commands of God as the way that you are justified by God. It's a heart that is believing the way to be declared right with him is through your right living. And it's oftentimes how we want to react when we see people living with this license to sin. We think more legalism is the solution. But the licentious heart and the legalistic heart both have the same root problem. They both, they've been described as non-identical twins from the same womb. Because what you are doing in both situations is you are divorcing the commands of God from the character of God. The licentious heart doesn't see the commands of God for what they really are, for they really are blessings. Because the commands of an all-knowing, life-sustaining God are wise. They provide us guidance that we need to experience the fullness of joy in this life and in the life to come. The legalist as well, they, in, in seeing their own obedience to God's command as the way to be justified with, with him, I mean, they have to think of God so, in such a little way. Like, they have to think so little of God and so highly of themselves in order to feel like they've cleared the bar of God's approval. And they view God as a restrictive God, a God who's really psyched about not letting us eat from this one tree, and they totally miss the fact that he's given us a, a garden to eat from. And they live as if God's love and God's grace has come to them because of something in them and what they have done. And so then in misery, they try not to lose what they think they have earned from God. 
to respond to the commands of God with a heart that is, has a license to sin or a heart, a legalistic heart, is to separate the commands of God from the character of God. And instead, we must come to the commands of God and respond to Him uh, and respond to them with hearts that are believing the gospel. A person believing the gospel looks at the commands of God and sees how far they have fallen short. And that drives them to faith in Christ. And through faith in Christ, they are united with Christ. And in their union with Christ, they receive forgiveness for their sins and freedom from their sins. And they also then receive the indwelling Holy Spirit who will now help and empower them to obey the commands of God. If the commands of God are not separated from his character, then we understand them to be blessings for us. They are wisdom from God. They will bring about his glory and our good. And Pastor Bob Thune in, in the book Gospel-Centered Life, which I probably reference this quote more than any other, and it's one of the books we have out on the table we recommend to you. And, and the reason I keep bringing up this over and over and over again is because we have to understand how the commands of God and the gospel relate to one another. We have to understand how the law and the gospel work together. And Bob Thune, one of the quotes from his book that we'll have up on the screen there, he says, the law drives us to Jesus, and Jesus frees us to obey the law. <clears throat> There's a chapter out there in that book you could probably read in the lobby before you go home. Don't even have to buy the book. The commands of God lead us to the gospel, and the gospel frees us to delight in and obey the commands of God. And so Paul is, he's trying to guard us and keep us from a licentious heart, but he doesn't want to do that through adding more legalism to our hearts, but instead he wants us to respond with hearts that are believing the gospel. That's his desire. So let's remember that as we start to see some of these commands from God in Romans 6. Look with me at Romans 6 verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. If you're taking notes, here's point number one for you. We can walk in newness of life instead of continuing in sin because of our union with Christ. Our union with Christ. When we came to faith in Christ, yes, we were justified. We were declared right with God. We received the righteousness of Christ. But we were also united with Christ in his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation. 
Like for, for the believer, right? The life that Christ lived, he, the, the, the life of righteous obedience he lived is now our righteousness. The death he died on the cross, we also died to sin. And when he was raised, we were also raised to newness of life. And when he ascended and was exalted, Paul says to the Ephesians that in some sense we also were seated with him in the heavenly places. We have been united to him. We are in him. And the other glorious thing about our union with Christ is that yes, we are in him. And all these things that are true of Christ are now true of us. But also Christ is in us. And this occurs through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Church, for those who are in Christ, the Holy Spirit has moved in. And when the Holy Spirit moves in, renovation begins. I mean, aren't there certain people who like, whenever they move in somewhere, they just know how to make things better and more glorious. There, there are certain people who are gifted this way. Uh, recently here, we met with uh, uh, Trent and Christina in our middle office, which for those of you that haven't been in there, um, it used to be just more of kind of an overflow room, a couple little chairs. It felt like a dark dungeon. And uh, anytime we'd like pull people in to pray with them, everyone got very nervous. They didn't know what that room was about or anything. And so uh, we were, I was meeting in there with Trent and Christina, and they they look around, and they're just like, can we, can we help you guys? Like this, you know, there's nothing on the walls. There's nothing happening. This feels like a cry for help, right? And so I said, yes, we would love the help. And they put things up on the walls and, and uh, a mirror so it doesn't feel as small. There's no windows in there and furniture and, and some greenery now. And uh, it's, it's wonderful. It's glorious. People love being in there. People are way less nervous to get pulled in there. Uh, still a little nervous, but not as much. And, and the same thing is true with, uh, with Brittany when we moved into our house, right? Brittany knew what, what walls needed to be taken out, what flooring needed replaced, what paint was needed. And she just knew how to make it glorious and beautiful and, and livable. And while it was painful in the process, I'm so glad that those things happened. There's been so much life and community that's been cultivated in these, in these places, and church, if a, if a human being can move in somewhere and make it glorious, how much more the Spirit of the living God? Now, when the Spirit moves in, there are definitely some demo days and maybe some demo years and maybe some demo seasons there are idols and walls that need to be knocked down. There are floors and foundations that need to be replaced and poured. And it's painful at times, but it's for a glorious and good purpose. God does not move into our hearts and just allow things to stay the same. He has moved in with the intention of preparing us to dwell with him forever. You cannot be united with Christ, have the Holy Spirit live in you, and live the same way you lived before. 
not possible. We can walk in newness of life instead of continuing in sin because of our union with Christ. We have been united with him in his death and resurrection and the Holy Spirit has moved in. And we're going to come back next week to talk a little bit more in these verses about baptism. All right, so it's going to seem like I'm skipping through that, but next week we're going to have a baptism Sunday. We're going to come back to this passage and, and look at it through the lens of baptism. But the question that arises from our union with Christ in this passage is what does it mean that we have died to sin? What does that mean? I mean, he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? What does it mean that we have died to sin? And he goes on into explain in verse 6, and then he's going to give us a command in verse 11 in regards to our death to sin. So look with me back at, at Romans 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Our old self, it could be translated our old man. He's referring to who we were in Adam, who we were before Christ, before becoming a new creation, before the Holy Spirit moving in. And Paul's saying, hey, you were in Adam, and that person has been crucified. The old man has died. That's not who you are anymore. When we first had uh, Jackson, Jackson's our oldest son. Uh, we first had Jackson. He was maybe a couple of months old. Uh, we still had a lot of friends that didn't have any kids. And I remember getting a call, uh, a friend asking us to go out to a movie that same night at like 9 p.m. at night. Right, So they're, they're calling, asking that same day to go to a movie past 9 p.m. And we're like, man, don't you know what has just happened to us? <laughs> like the people that could spontaneously pick up and go to a late night movie, they don't live here anymore. That was our old self. That was in the past. Like those people have died. Maybe they come back in 18 years. We don't know. But that's not who's here anymore. That's not us. Augustine had a similar experience. He's one of the early church leaders. Before he came to Christ, he had pursued the fleeting pleasures of sin. He, he had a mistress. And after his conversion, he's, his story is told, he's walking through the streets and he's walking past the house of his mistress. And his mistress is calling out to him, Augustine, it is I. It is I. Come be with me. And he doesn't stop. He just keeps walking. And she runs out to him and she grabs him and says, What is the matter? It, it is I. To which he responds, The matter, dear lady, is that it is not I. That was the old me. That was the old man. That was the old self. That was the time that was B.C., before Christ. But that old self has been crucified with Christ. 
And this is what you must remember, church, when sin calls out to you. When sin says, it is I, don't you remember? Don't you remember the pleasure that I brought you? Don't you remember the comfort that I gave to you when you were lonely? Don't you remember how I helped ease your pain and helped you escape all the stresses of life? Church, when that happens, when sin cries out to you, I exhort you to remember the meaning of your baptism in that moment. Remember that your old self was crucified with Christ. Remember that you have been raised to newness of life. And remind yourself that you are not who you once were. Your old self was crucified so that, what does verse 6 say? It says, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. You see, we first needed to, with Christ, die to sin so that now we can die to self daily. We needed to, on that cross, in that moment with Christ, we needed to die to sin so that now we can die to self daily. You see, when the Bible speaks of our salvation, it it will speak of it in three different tenses, which can sometimes be confusing for us because at times we'll read passages like we were saved, and sometimes we'll read passages that say we are being saved, and sometimes we'll read passages that say we will be saved, and there's kind of this past, present, future aspect to salvation, and it can sometimes get confusing, and so we do have different biblical words to help clarify and help us understand our salvation. We'll have those three words up here on the screen. Our justification is our past salvation from the penalty of sin, right? This is something that's happened in the past. We have been justified through faith in Christ. We've been declared right. We've been released from the penalty of sin. But on the other hand, we are being saved. We're in the process of being saved. And this is describing our sanctification. It's our present salvation from the power of sin. And then we trust and we hope in and we know about our future glorification. Our future salvation from the presence of sin. One day we will be free completely from its influence and presence in our lives. You see, because in Christ we have died to our sin in the past with Christ, we can now die to self in the present. Sin no longer has power over us. It might still have some influence, but it's not reigning and ruling over us. It does not hold a power over us any longer right? We have died to sin. And what that means, we have died to sin, that means we have died to the ruling power of sin in our lives. We have died to sin. We have died to the ruling power of sin in our lives. To have died to sin means that you are no longer a slave of sin. Before Christ, you were a slave to sin. And you probably didn't even know it. But even on your best days, you were living for the glory of self and not for the glory of Christ. 
you were a slave. Sin ruled you. It exercised the highest influence and control over your life. But get this, in Christ, that is no longer the case. In Christ, we have died to sin so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Look look back at Romans 6, verse now in verse 7. He writes, For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Church, in Christ, you have been set free from sin. You are free from the enslaving power of sin. You're not a slave anymore. Sin no longer has a hold on us. But unfortunately, until our glorification, while sin might not have a hold on us, we can still have a hold on sin. After the American Civil War was over, after slavery had been abolished, all the former slaves had to learn to live in this new reality that we are striving to live in this morning. It's the reality that they were no longer slaves, but now they were free. But sadly, many of those who had lived their whole lives as slaves, they had trouble living in this new reality. They had heard the good news that they were free, but they still lived with the fear and the anxiety that at any moment they could be sold or or bossed around by their former masters. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in reference to this reality, he said, you can still be a slave experientially, even when you are no longer a slave legally. Whatever you may feel, whatever your experience may be, God tells us through his word that if we are in Christ, we are no longer in Adam. We are no longer under the reign and rule of sin. And if I fall into sin, as I do, it is simply because I do not realize who I am. Church, are you still a slave to sin experientially, even when you are no longer a slave legally? Are you still holding on to sin that is no longer holding on to you? Now here's here's a command. We're coming to a command now in Romans. It's one of the first commands in Romans thus far. We find it in verse 11. And he says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments 
for righteousness. Now for the believers, right, for the believers in the room, this reality is already true. In Christ, you have died to sin. It no longer has ruling power over you, all right? It's like you've gotten a new, a new boss, all right? Imagine you get a new boss. Your old boss can still call you and ask you to do something, and I suppose you could still do it, but he's not in charge of you anymore. You don't have to. He doesn't have authority over you anymore. You can say no. And you see, this is the glorious truth. In Christ, you who once were dead in your sins are now dead to your sins. It's wonderful. It's glorious. Sin can't tell you what to do anymore. You can walk in newness of life because you have been set free from sin, right? That's our second point, right? Our union with Christ, you can walk in newness of life also because you have been set free from sin. You're no longer a slave. But here's the command that God has for us. Paul's already stated what is true. You are dead to sin. You are set free from sin. But the command is, you must believe this about yourself. You must believe this. If you are in Christ, you must reckon or count yourself as one who is dead to sin and alive to God. And this not only this obedience to this command not only does it consist of believing this about ourselves, but it also then includes presenting ourselves not to sin any longer, not to unrighteousness any longer, but presenting ourselves to God. And later in chapter 6, we'll look at what that looks like to present ourselves to God now. But for the time, for today, you need to understand that to walk in newness of life, it means to embrace what God is calling you to instead of clinging to what God is calling you from. So many times we try to walk in this newness of life, but we're just so obsessed and clinging to what God is calling us from that we don't cling to and present ourselves to what God is calling us to. We are called to walk in newness of life. And we can do this because we have been united to Christ. We have the Spirit indwelling in us. And we have been freed from sin. We're no longer slaves. But being united to Christ and dying to sin and being set free from sin does not mean that we no longer struggle with sin. Christians still struggle with sin. Christians still have to fight sin, confess sin. And turn from sin. In fact, I would say that to struggle with sin is uniquely a Christian experience. Why can I say that? Well, because before you were not united to Christ, before you were set free from sin, we were slaves to sin. Sin ruled over us. There was no struggle. I mean, sure, maybe there was a trading of one sin for the other because our conscience felt better about it. We maybe knew there was maybe fewer consequences or it was more respectable in society to do this and not that. 
But there was no struggle for sin. There was trading one for the other. We were still pursuing and glorifying ourselves and not God. And so, dear church, the fact that you are struggling with sin, the fact that some of you today are miserable in your sin, this is, in fact, evidence that the Spirit has taken up residence in your life. And who you were in Adam has died. And so it's not that Christians don't struggle with sin. We do. There's actually even a strange encouragement to hear about someone struggling with sin. But listen, here's the thing. Christians don't surrender to sin. They don't make peace with it. Slaves surrender, but some of us talk and believe that we should still live like slaves to sin. And listen, church, I I have the last few months, I've been greatly encouraged that a number of you have brought sin into the light with a desire to turn from it and fight it together. And don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm grieved to, to hear of sin in our church family. I am. I, it, it's a sorrowful thing. I'm grieved by it. But, but your pastors, we're, not, we're also not surprised by it. And I'm encouraged that the Spirit has convicted you and made you miserable enough to bring it to the surface. And so let's fight it together. Let's fight against hearts that feel like they have, to, they have a license to sin. Let's fight against legalistic hearts. And let's fight to believe the gospel together. Let's fight to say no to sin and yes to Christ in every moment of every day. I'm not discouraged by that. But here is why my heart is a little heavy this morning. And my heart was heavy last night and in the days leading up to this as I prayed and prepared for us and what God might be wanting for this church as we go through Romans 6. My heart is heavy because I feared something. And I fear that some of you have completely surrendered to sin. You've just made peace with it. You've just shrugged it off and said, you know, God's gracious, so whatever. And in your surrender to sin, your spiritual senses are becoming duller and duller. Your love for God and for others is growing colder and colder. You are abdicating your God-given responsibilities left and right. And listen, men, if you have surrendered to lust in your life, if you have surrendered to anger or to greed or to pride, like if you've just made peace with those things, like I'm a guy, it's understandable, look at the, look at the culture we live in. If you've, ma- if you've made peace with those things, you have surrendered like a coward. And we're all affected and hurt by it. 
Your brothers were on the front lines fighting the enemy for the sake of our families and our church, and you're curled up in the fetal position acting like you're still a slave. We need you, men. Your family needs you. But you've become a coward because you've surrendered to sin. You surrender to it each and every day. That's just your natural disposition is to surrender. And you've abdicated your responsibility to your family. You've neglected your responsibility to the church. And your complacency is contagious. We start to think it's acceptable. And it's become like a cancer in the church. I mean, where are the men who will lead and love and speak and teach like Christ? I fear that many of their energies have been drained and distracted by all the guilt and shame they're living with because they've surrendered to sin. And listen, if that's you, if that's you, you have wrongly thought that grace has been given to you in order to excuse your sin. Instead of realizing that grace has been given to you so that you could stand up and fight your sin. The grace that we preach week after week, it's not to be seen as an excuse for sin. It's actually to be seen as empowering you to fight sin. It's not an excuse for your disobedience. It's an empowerment for your obedience. And so we need to understand that we will struggle with sin, but we do not surrender to it. And if you have no intention of fighting sin, this is probably not the place for you. We love you. We'll still be friends with you. But we as a church family, we're going to fight sin together. We're going to see the empowering aspect of grace. We're not just going to preach that through the gospel, God forgives us. We're also going to preach that God frees us. Now, women, I'm going to address you for a little bit. So let me, let me warn you. The sins of men are, are usually a lot easier to, to pick a fight with. Oftentimes, the sins of men are a bit more obvious and out there. And a lot of times, women, the sin that you are surrendering to is much more subtle. So it can be hard to see. It can sometimes be hard to know how to fight against it and how to do battle with it. But some of you have surrendered to to envy. Just made peace with it, that Just left and right, you're going to be envious of others. Some of you have surrendered to gossip, to unforgiveness, to bitterness. 
Some of you have surrendered to listening to and speaking flattery to one another. Like if someone has never met you before and they are telling you you're doing a great job as a mother, they're flattering you. And the Proverbs say that they're spreading a net for your feet. I mean, you, you might be doing a good job as a mother, but, but don't let someone who, who doesn't know you tell you that. And don't tell someone that if that's not true. Don't lie to your sisters in Christ. Don't surrender to some of these subtle things that are being stirred up in your hearts. Now, some of you, some of you have surrendered to fear and anxiety. Now, don't get me wrong. Some of you are struggling with fear and anxiety. Praise God for that. Let's keep struggling. But some of you have just simply surrendered. This is just the, it's just the, way, I, it's just the way I am. It's just the way I was raised. just how I've always been. You don't know what has, hap- what, what has happened to me. Pastors hear that a lot. You don't know what has happened to me. And listen, I know I... I I don't know every pain or wound that everyone in here has experienced. I know probably more than I can even in a healthy way handle. I'm sorrowful over those things. But I came to preach today that in Christ, I do know what has happened to you. You're the one that doesn't know what has happened to you if you're surrendering to sin. In Christ, you have died to sin. In Christ, you have been set free from sin. God has provided to you, through the gospel, both forgiveness and freedom from sin. Grace has not been given to us so that we would lay down and surrender to sin. Grace has been given so that we would get up and fight sin together. The proclamation of the grace of God week in and week out is not an excuse to surrender to sin. It is the empowering force that should cause you to get up and fight. And some of you right now, I know that you are discouraged. And you've laid on those floors of despair thinking that you will just never get victory over this sin. And you're on the verge of giving up. And so I want to speak to you who are right now on the verge of surrendering. You've been struggling and struggling and struggling. You're on the verge of just surrendering to it and making peace with it and just living, you know, just trying to live with it. And church, I've got good news for you this morning. God's command in verse 11 rests upon one of the sweetest promises God has ever given us in verse 14. The reason we can get up and fight our sin and live no longer as slaves to sin is because of the promise in verse 14. Look with me at this promise. It probably needs to be on a note card in your pocket. It probably needs to go with you everywhere you go to fight sin. Look at verse 14. For the believer, for the one who is in Christ, this is a promise. 
God is a promise keeper. It is our duty to be a promise believer. All right? May he help us believe this. Romans 6.14, for sin will have no dominion over you. since you are not under law, but under grace. He's saying, for those of you in Christ, the law is not thrown out, but the law is no longer standing over you in judgment. The law now has been put into your heart. It's a delight. You don't stand under the judgment of the law any longer. You stand under God's grace, and it is through receiving God's grace that we are strengthened and encouraged to live and love and follow Jesus and say no to sin and yes to God. We can do this because of this promise that God says for those in Christ, sin will not have dominion over you. You might struggle, you might struggle, you might struggle. You might have to keep confessing and repenting and believing the gospel and confessing and repenting and believing the gospel. But we know where this is headed. Sin will not have dominion over you. And it's the exact opposite of the lie that we hear or we tell ourselves when we are struggling with sin, isn't it? Because what's the lie we hear when we're struggling with sin? The lie is, You'll never be free of this. You'll always be a slave. And when you hear lies, this is when you need to be ready with the promises of God for yourself and for others. Romans 6.14, yes, I might be, I might. I might be fighting temptation in this moment, but sin will have no dominion over me. I stand under the glorious grace of God, and therefore I will get up and fight and walk in newness of life. I'm going to close in prayer. You guys can go ahead. Let's bow your, bow your heads.